Hi everyone, my name is Justin Raich and I am the Executive Director of the International Churchill Society and I'm also the host of this podcast titled Glowworm. And as my guest for this third episode of Glowworm, I have Catherine Katz, who is the author of The Daughters of Yalta, but also the co-host of the upcoming International Churchill Conference in London next week. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Justin. How are you? I'm doing just fine, and I look forward to seeing you next week. It's going to be a blast. So for those of you who are listening, who have either who are not either not coming in person or who have not yet signed up, the online portion of our conference is free. So I encourage you to, I encourage you to go to winstonchurchill.org and find the events link, and you'll see the conference there, and you can sign up for free. So, Catherine, before we get into a discussion of history, why history is, you know, has drawn you throughout your life um, and the relevance of it is to, of what history has today to teach current generations, I would like to ask you, are you pumped for the uh, cover of your upcoming paperback? I am so pumped. I love the cover for the paperback. I think it is really striking uh historically driven but still modern just i i'm really excited about it uh hits shelves october 19th so uh just a, a few short weeks away and i presume you'll be doing some some sort of book tour is that right well this whole year has kind of been an extended book tour because of zoom and everything a lot of groups wanted to wait until we could, could be back in person so i've been doing in-person events which has been so much fun over the last couple of weeks and months uh, with more to come later this fall, as well as continuing to do Zoom events. And it just has really, I, I think, changed the way that people think about how to spread the word about books, how to share stories. And it's also captured a whole new audience of people who otherwise maybe wouldn't have been able to attend book events uh, and just become part of the conversation, um, especially folks who you know are part of you know, an older generation who really want to be involved in the conversation, have so much to contribute. And I think the different ways that we have to be able to have those conversations now has really been great to have them more actively involved, which I have so enjoyed. So let's begin this conversation by um, you telling me and the listeners First off, what, why'd you write a book? You're a law student. You, um, you know, graduated from Harvard and you went to Cambridge and you were working in finance. Um, I think a logical next step, next step is to write a book. I think most people will feel that way. But let's, let's just, just tell us why you, why, why'd you want to write a book? I always wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl. My favorite stories growing up were really about girls who wanted to be writers who became writers like Little House on the Prairie, uh, Laura Ingalls, Anne Green Gables, uh, A Little Princess, stories of that like that. And I was always writing stories from the time I was a little kid. And actually during COVID while I was back home, like, like many people, there was a big clean out the basement effort. And I discovered boxes and boxes of these little stories that I would write from the time I was in kindergarten, first grade. And so I clearly had the writing bug very early. And I just didn't think that I'd be able to do this kind of as a career at this point in my life. And it was a, a series of fortuitous coincidences that all came together that made it possible to do this. Uh, when I graduated from my master's program at Cambridge, I thought that I was done with history at least for the time being. I wanted to find my way back to it, but didn't know how to do that kind of as immediately um, without kind of doing a history PhD, you know, becoming a, a professor of history. And that's not quite what I wanted to do. 
Um, so I was working in finance and applying to law school. I think that's kind of a natural step for a lot of people who are interested in history and writing. But it was a series of fortuitous coincidences that led me to a bookstore that was in the lobby of my office in Midtown in Manhattan, which specialized in books by and about Winston Churchill, Chartwell Booksellers. Uh, and of course, that then led to an introduction to the International Churchill Society and the Churchill family and the chance to see Sarah Churchill's papers. And so it really was this very um, exciting, unpredictable path that allowed me to do something that I'd wanted to do since I was a little kid, but much earlier in my life than I ever expected. Um, and I think it just goes to show that no matter you know who you are or what you're doing, you never know who you're going to meet and how your life is going to change each day when you walk out the door. So just always be ready for new opportunities as they come. So your master plan, if I've listened to it correctly, is to become the next John Grisham. <laughs> just just the, not, the non-fiction version. You know, yeah, yeah sure, sure. I'll be the nonfiction <laughs> version. <laughs> I mean, I can see it. You know, you you're working, you're working a, a, in law. You know, pretty pretty um, time consuming profession, and you're doing a already you know a crap ton of writing. And why not just throw in another nonfiction? Like on the yeah, side. Yeah, Scott Turow did it. He published a book during law school. He went to my high school. So whatever training he got, I think hopefully I'm getting too. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. You know, there are no billable hours. I don't think in writing your own book. Um, but you know, while, while you're billing those hours, you can certainly, you can certainly put it on the side. Um, if I can ask, so the hardback's been out for over a year. Exactly a year yesterday. Exactly a year yesterday. Can you, uh, think of some unexpected responses that you've received to the book? Well, the, one of the most exciting things that's happened over the course of this last year is how many people have either attended Zoom events or in-person events who have a personal connection to the book far more than I ever could have imagined. I uh, was doing a program I, with a group in Boston uh, over the winter, and one of the gentlemen listening, uh, his father was the, the commander of the destroyer squadron that escorted FDR to Yalta, which was incredible. Just uh, two days ago, I was doing a lunch event in New York City, and there were several family members and extended family members of the figures in my book who were at the event. Um, Kathleen Harriman had actually been a member of this club where I was speaking, and so a number of people actually knew her. And so it just really gives the sense that history is not as far away as you think. And that for these people like Churchill or Roosevelt, who we put up on a pedestal and they become very removed from our own lives, and it's hard to relate to them. I just kind of keep going back to this. For somebody, they were they were you know dad or you know uncle or brother or you know it's insane. It's just uh, it makes history feel a lot more personal and much more direct and relevant to our lives today than I think one might have the sense of when they look at old black and white photographs uh, in a history textbook. Yeah, I'm so glad you you bring up that point. I I I find often that. You know, I'll talk to students and their first impression of Winston Churchill or the only impression of Winston Churchill is of a 65-year-old man chewing a cigar, you know, drinking whiskey in the morning, basically a caricature, you know, in, in the sense of like, uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, of course, truth in that thing. But they think he's just like, he's like Benjamin Button. He's just born as an old person. And like, there's no, there's no context. There's no previous life. There's nothing. Um, and I think your point about saying that history is so much closer than you think is poignant and it's important. 
But my question, but here's the question for people like yourself and then, you know, people like me in, in the sense of, you know, promoting and practicing history in a way. How do you, how do you, sh- how do you pull back the curtain on that? And how, you know, like what's, what's the effective way to, to show someone of this generation that, you know, it actually is, you know, not, not only, not six degrees removed from, from whatever you're experiencing right now. One thing that was very helpful to me, and this was purely serendipitous, is that my first interaction really with Winston Churchill was not with Churchill as prime minister. Of course, you know, I knew about it. You know, he was a you know fixture in history classes. But the first time I really sat down and studied Churchill and his life was actually when he was a much younger man, much closer to my own age. You know, he was just three years older than me at the time I was looking at. Um, I was writing my senior thesis at Harvard about British prisoner of war escape narratives, which was inspired by my love of the movie, The Great Escape, uh, which I'd loved since I was a little kid. I wrote my eighth grade term paper about The Great Escape. And so I wanted to know why these British POWs who were escaping at the same rate as the Americans uh, or attempting to escape at the same rate, why did they all go and write stories and memoirs about that experience while Americans really didn't? And what I discovered was it kind of was in the model of Winston, what Winston Churchill had done after he escaped from the uh, Boer POW camp in 1899 uh, during the Boer War. And it was that tale of his thrilling escape, which launched him to fame in Britain and really jumpstarted his political career. And so getting to know him as a 24-year-old was a little bit different than getting to know him just as prime minister. So I think that that allowed me to see him in several other facets from the very beginning. And then again, when I was at Cambridge doing my master's, he kind of sneakily found his way into my research again, this time as home secretary during World War I, um, just you know, a decade and a half later. And so it's just kind of Understanding someone outside of the context of the thing that they're most famous for is often really helpful. And I fundamentally believe that the person who ends up becoming the leader that we really admire, or really, you know, any of us at all, just who we are is really formed by early life experiences, what you read as a child, you know, who you meet, uh, the places you visit. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, someone's favorite childhood books can be even more telling about them than meetings that they had in the cabinet room, you know, at the height of their career. So I think it's really important to understand a person to take their whole life into perspective and those really formative years when they're young. Um, and to be able to do that kind of as a young person of that age, I think also just made it feel a lot more relatable. Um, great point about looking at someone's bookshelf reveals a lot of them whatever I go to I haven't done this recently because of COVID but whenever I go to someone's house or you know like for a party or whatever I always look at their bookshelf and I don't know if it's you know off-putting but I will examine that thing for a very long time well people often like to talk about their bookshelves it's kind of a, a great way to strike a conversation find commonalities ask why they have a, a particular interest where they seem to have a lot of literature but I think even more telling is sometimes that childhood bookshelf, and that's a little, maybe a little bit less accessible, but maybe worth asking somebody about. Well, let's ask you, what was on your childhood bookshelf? <laughs> well, I was really lucky to grow up in a family of readers. My mom would read aloud to us from the time we were little, before we could read to ourselves, before we could even understand. And so I, I don't even I don't remember a time when I didn't know how to read. Um, that's how early she introduced reading to us. Um, like I mentioned, I loved The Little House on the Prairie, uh, Anne Green Gables. <laughs> uh, uh, my mom read a lot of English children's classics to us. Um, you know, illustrated books like the Beatrix Potter books, we love those. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Harry Potter. Um, so it was just kind of a constant stream of reading. I read a ton of mysteries. Um, 
spy stories. Yeah, it didn't have to be all, you know, really highbrow literature. And then starting to discover classics like Jane Austen's books when I was in middle school and junior high and understanding kind of what great writing was in addition to a great story. And I am really grateful to have had that as a little kid. And it, to this day, remains some of my favorite memories from childhood. Um, and I hope to do that with my own kids someday when I have them to make reading a, an important part of every day. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, it's incredibly important. Um, and I think it it sparks a sense of uh, otherness and like imagine and like wanting to open the door, you know, in, in let's use the lion, witch in the wardrobe metaphor, open that door and see what's through it. That's what books do. Uh, and of course, you know, theoretically and in your mind, but it also leads you places. Um, in, <laughs> I'm glad, what are those, who was the, the book, the, the set of books, the series of books of the young um, girl, like detective? Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew. Okay, Nancy yes. Drew is one of my favorite. I love she's Nancy Drew. One books. of my literary heroines. My grandmother had a whole collection of Nancy Drew books from the 1930s when she was a little girl, the original editions, which were actually different than the yellow spine ones that you see in most bookstores today. Uh, they actually were rewritten in the 1950s to appeal to a more modern audience. But what it did was kind of took away a lot of the glamour and sophistication. Um, that Nancy had kind of in her first iteration, you know, they did small things like change the color of her car, but kind of just even the way that she spoke and the way she interacted with her friends, it was just, you know, a little bit more sophisticated. And uh, I didn't know that until my grandmother gave me her collection of Nancy Drew books when I was nine or 10 years old. And I just poured over them, even though I'd read the yellow spine ones. And to this day, they remain really important to me. I wrote one of my college essays about Nancy Drew. Um, and then we had this book collecting competition um, at Harvard for undergrads. And you can submit a collection. Wait, excuse me, a book collecting competition. Yeah, a book, yeah is that not the, the most like Harvard nerd thing ever? <laughs> so I submitted an essay and kind of you know bibliography of my collection of my grandmother's Nancy Drew books, which she inspired me to start collecting, kind of filling out gaps in her collection where I could. Um, so I think it's pretty evident that I was a historian from a young age and wanted to be a writer and that finance wasn't my... I had no idea that they rewrote those books. That's... I. Wow, that's somewhat of a tragedy. I know. They're great. You should go find the old ones. They did actually do a reprint of them uh, maybe oh, okay. 15 years ago. Um, so you can find them, but you have to look a little harder. All right. Speaking of reprints... This um, paperback of yours, are there any changes? Did you update like the intro or anything like that, or is it just a pure reprint? Um, there were a couple of pesky little typos that we found. Actually, a couple of readers found and sent in to me. Um, I think there was one sentence that always bothered me that I felt awkward that I changed a little bit. <laughs> but other than that, uh, no, it, it is the same um, as the uh, first edition. Um, so yeah, uh, just new cover art. Um, can we talk about your favorite? And I'm going to start. Excuse me. Um, little tidbits and anecdotes of the book. So you know, for I think a lot of people who have um, followed us in the ICS, you know, they've they've probably listened to you and and you know had a conversation or listened to one of your conversations. You, you talk a lot about the um, unique. Um, opening of Sarah Churchill's um, uh, diaries, excuse me. That's cool. 
and obviously was the you know what caused you to write a, a a new book in the Churchill canon. I want to talk about the fun parts of your book. So I've always wondered this, and I read this in Giles Milton's book. I don't know if you've read this recent his recent release. It's called it's about uh, Checkmate in Berlin. It's about you know, the, the forming of the four sectors of Berlin. And he starts with the Alta Conference. And I was like, oh, I've already read this story. So I just kind of skimmed through it. Um, okay. Roosevelt says, oh, I like lemon twists in my martinis. And Stalin has a tree delivered the next day. That can't be true. It was true. It was definitely true. Multiple people wrote about this sudden appearance of a lemon tree just... Nobody knew who heard about it. It just appeared the next day, clearly was brought in from somewhere somewhat remote. It's just this oddity of the Russian hospitality, where on the one hand, they're in this crumbling villa on the Black Sea, which has been completely overrun by the Nazis. They stripped all of the furniture out, all like literally down to the doorknobs, which they could melt down as scrap metal when they when they left just a couple of months before uh, Yalta, when the Soviets pushed them out. And so, you know, the Soviets just frantically try to put it all back together by getting the Hotel Metropole furniture and dishes and, you know, staff uniforms and carting them a thousand miles south. And so it's kind of this hodgepodge, even though from the outside, it looks very beautiful and sophisticated. And despite all of the uh, kind of horrific acts that the Soviets imposed upon their own people and just a real disregard for human life, which was pervasive throughout the war and the Cold War, on the other hand, they take hosting extremely seriously, and they're very gracious hosts and are wounded if their gracious overtures are not recognized or appreciated. And so this finding a lemon tree kind of in the midst of a war, something that no one would ever expect or, you know, that just is above and beyond anything that anyone could ask for. It's really remarkable that they do go to these great lengths, and I think it is kind of telling about the divergence almost in kind of the, the hardness and the great beauty and art that comes out of Russian culture. And you can kind of see that in that that hosting. But it's funny that you mentioned the lemon tree and you were saying before kind of, you know, some favorite little tidbits. The lemon tree actually kind of carries over as one of my favorite tidbits throughout the conference, because at the end, this thing is left there. And, you know, it's, it's a precious commodity in the middle of the war, having fresh lemons. Um, when Kathy Harriman first flies to London at the beginning of the war, she you know, brought a couple of lemons with her. Um, people are very envious. And rumors started going around that she was using them to wash her hair. Like, as if, you know, it's this, this frivolous American thing to do. Um, but the lemon tree, it kind of almost, I don't think they had, they had certainly had no in inclination of this at the time. But to me, it kind of became this metaphor for the conference where here is this lemon tree. And the conference really, in many ways, turns out to be a lemon. They really don't actually accomplish what they had hoped. Um, and at the end, they kind of chop up the lemon tree and give everybody a branch to take home as a, a symbol of peace, as if it's an olive branch. And really, it's, they're literally walking away with a lemon. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. You cannot. And this is the stuff that the archives are golden because you do not know what you're going to find in there. And then you see something and you just know this has to go in. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm going to fit this in somehow. Um, so it was basically like a Potemkin village. And, you know, Crimea has, that was the Potemkin village. Um, and it's fascinating how that has carried through, you know, in, in, in centuries. Mm -hmm. So the Crimea has kind of always been at the crossroads of warring empires. It's a, a place that is overrun 
you know, at least once every hundred years as empires spar kind of on, you know, the, the rim of civilization as they would have you know, described it in the 19th century. And so you have these people who live in the Crimea who it just kind of seems like every generation, as soon as they put their lives back together, somebody comes through and runs it over again and they rebuild and move on and then it gets run over again. And you know, it's, it's harrowing to think about living like that. And the daughters had the opportunity to go out into the local community and meet some of the Soviet people, which is something that their fathers didn't have a chance to do, which was really, it made a huge impression on them and also on their fathers when the daughters came back and told about what they had observed and the resilience of the people. And this distinction that they re the daughters were really able to make between the Soviet leadership and the so Soviet citizens and the sense of hope in the long term that would come from the kind of the people who were suffering in the Soviet Union or those who'd been um, displaced by the bombing in London really had so much in common. And it was just really very poignant and striking to them uh, when they had the opportunity to do that. And, you know, the Crimea is a, one of numerous examples of um, history um, happen, happening in the same place. You know, think about 2014 when, when Russia annexed Crimea in Ukraine was like, okay, that, I, I thought that was our land, but Russia said no, and uh, obviously illegal. Um, and so uh, what I want to ask you as a historian, as a, as a young historian, in the, and maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, and so let me know if I am, but with social media and TikTok, and I know you're on TikTok, and that's good for you, and I, I know you promote the book, but I, my, I, I could never do it. TikTok is exhausting. I haven't made a TikTok in like three months because I got so burned out. Okay. <laughs> exactly. It's exhausting. You could be reading and researching and writing another another book. So where I'm going with this is this generation, are they not interested in history? I mean, I know this is just one, two of us discussing this and who knows how well informed we are, but we do practice in history and we trade in history. Um, what's the, like, is this generation not focused on the past because they just haven't been taught that it's important or are they just like every generation where they're super, super, you know, self-possessed and as time grows, they'll pick up a copy of The World Crisis and say, wow, Winston Churchill, that man was great. What's your take on it? I think there are a couple of themes that are going on with this. First, I, I think that some people, it takes them a little longer to realize that they love history. It can seem really dry when they're in school. It's kind of, here are the names and the dates. And unless you have a really engaging history teacher who teaches it like a story, it's going to be hard to you. get somebody engaged in that. So I think part of it is that we need to think about the way that history is taught in the grade school and high school level. I was really fortunate to have wonderful teachers that made it you know, a compelling narrative. I mean, history is a narrative. And also really emphasize that there is something for everyone in history. It is the history of all of us and that can be imagined in so many different ways. And yet I also think that there's this tendency to silo history in kind of different verticals where you've got you know, social history or economic history or women's history or military history. And in reality, that's not how it works. All of these things go hand in hand. And so you kind of have to take it from a broader perspective. And I, I really push back against my book being kind of considered one type of history or another. What, 
what what do you think if sorry for interrupting what do you think it has been labeled as i mean i think that there's kind of a tendency at first glance to think of it maybe as women's history because you know i am a woman who wrote it it's you know three women are kind of the headline figures however yeah. you know i really see it as a story about relationships and fathers and daughters um and i think kind of calling it women's history might make someone who doesn't realize how compelling history can be think that that's not the kind of history for them um yeah. that you know maybe men shouldn't you know read women's history i i you know i think that that can kind of scare people away the other thing that i think is going on and i don't know if this is you know just our generation or maybe there's some element of this in every generation but alongside the increasing importance that's placed on STEM in education, and don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of STEM. Thank God for STEM saving us from a pandemic. But we also have to kind of not also then devalue other types of learning, communication, writing, reading, interpretive skills, analysis, um, language. And these are the things that I think really derive meaning from life through these tools and it's one thing to just kind of execute a task in front of you but it's another thing to understand where that fits into the bigger picture and so yeah i think it's kind of a similar like the siloing of types of history kind of the this maybe somewhat of a, a less emphasis on a liberal arts education or well-rounded education yeah. um so i think it's just something that we should be careful about all of these things are important not that you know history or stem is more or less important than the other but that they can and should be taken together. And just anecdotally, yeah. I mean, I know so many doctors who are huge history fans. <laughs> so it's not to say that so a certain type of person is only interested in a certain type of thing. That is definitely not true. And we need to give ourselves more credit for enjoying and understanding things that are maybe beyond what is kind of our day job every, you know, right in front of us every day. So I'd like to end with, uh, as this is a Churchill podcast, um, in researching and writing your book, tell me your favorite or surprising part of your book regarding Winston Churchill. <laughs> My favorite or surprising part regarding Winston Churchill. Uh, uh, can I give you mine? When they're driving along the, the, the road from the airport, um, uh, it wasn't Odessa, was it? Where they landed. Landed. Uh, Saki. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. They, so, they're driving. <laughs> they're hitting the potholes. <laughs> and he looks to Sarah and says, five more hours of this? <laughs> like, anyone would say that. Anybody would say that. So, I, I just, it just is very, you know, revealing of, 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 of him and everyone. So, but I want to I hear from the author. Gosh. Well, I mean, you pull out a fun one, and so <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll go with the you know, more poignant one. Um, I think that it's we have a tendency to kind of see of you know the of, you know between Churchill and FDR, FDR kind of has a more public reputation of being more progressive. Um, his partnership with Eleanor really did a lot for women in America. But when it came to the treatment of kind of the women in his own family, that progressive attitude didn't really carry over at all. Um, and by contrast, I came to see Churchill actually as one who really valued and appreciated the women in his family and the skills and talents and experiences that they brought to the table. 
And perhaps this is really summed up in uh, an exchange between Sarah and Winston when she comes home uh, from, she's in the military, uh, she's in the women's branch of the RAF, where she's an intelligence officer, and she comes home on leave for a weekend, and she immediately goes up to see her papa, and uh, they're chatting, and he says, at this moment, uh, headed towards the Mediterranean are, you know, 432 ships. I don't, I don't remember the exact number. She says, actually, Papa, it's 433. And he got such a kick out of this that she was so intimately aware of the details of Operation Torch because of her work. And he was so proud of her for doing really well and contributing so much that he then went down to dinner. And that night's dinner guest was Eleanor Roosevelt. And so he starts bragging to Eleanor Roosevelt about how Sarah has all this knowledge and she knew exactly how many ships are headed to the Mediterranean. And Eleanor Roosevelt the next day, thinking this is very charming, repeats the story to a newspaper. Sarah then gets hauled in front of her superiors oh. <laughs> the next day and they say, you know, who told Mrs. Roosevelt this? Who leaked this to the paper? This is classified information. You should know better. And this, she can only say, you know, it was my father and there's absolutely nothing that they can do about it. And it was really just a, purely a father bragging about his daughter, which I think is really sweet. That's incredibly touching. And, you know, I think you're right. Um, Churchill, throughout his life, he had very close women friends, Lady Astor comes to mind, and uh, or sorry, excuse me, um, Violet Bonham Carter comes to mind. Um, and I Maybe think not Lady Astor. Probably... <laughs> we like to spar with her. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. <laughs> that, there's an apocryphal story about Lady Astor. Actually, I think it's true. Is that she, He's the one who said, she said, you're drunk, and then he said, in the morning, I'm, I'll be sober, and you'll still be ugly, or something like that. <laughs> I don't think that huh, I don't think it was her, but I, I no no no. You're right. That was like a Welsh MP, like some who was just ragging him for for being lit up in 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 Parliament. But you know, I think it's a testament to the way he was brought up. You know, his he was so much closer with his mother, um, in in looked up to his mother. Whereas I think with his father, a very complicated relationship, he probably was wanting to prove to his father. Whereas he genuinely felt warmth from his mother. And he also had, as, as you know, a, um, a nanny, uh, Mrs. Womb, who, uh, uh, Mrs. Everest, excuse me, he called her Woomy, um, who had this incredible impact on his life. So it's, it's that through line, which is interesting to see that come out in, in his proud, you know, his pride for his daughter. Definitely. And I think it's also just really telling of, I mean, there are so many illicit romances and love affairs going on behind the scenes of Yalta. It's just kind of a whole other side of the story of the, you know, the geopolitics and how interconnected all of these delegations were and the, the leaders. And kind of, it, it feels at times like every single person at the Yalta conference was having an affair with somebody else. And the only one who wasn't was Winston Churchill. And I think that really says a lot, you know, about kind of, you know, he you know, had his, all this power and fame, but, you know, at the end of the day, he really loves and appreciates his wife and his daughters, and that is something that um, was really striking to me as I was writing this, and I guess of, you know, the big three, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want Stalin as my dad, but <laughs> I had to pick one of them, I would pick Churchill to be my dad. Yeah, I think we'd question your judgment, um, and to end this wonderful conversation, I will give you the apocryphal quote regarding Lady Astor. Lady Astor, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your tea. Churchill. Madam, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> Classic. If only it were true. <laughs> right. Well, Catherine, thanks for your time. As always, um, look for Catherine um, doing a lot of time and duty at the conference. For those who are listening, WinstonChurchill.org. Sign up for the free conference. You will certainly regret not doing so. 
Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Justin, and I'll see you in London.